take out your Bibles and turn to Revelation 21. We're in Revelation 21. And as Elijah told me this morning, one more chapter and we're all done with the Bible. And he said, what do you do once you've preached the whole Bible? I said, well, there's other parts that we can go through. All right, so let's read together. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the twelve gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 strata. This length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. First was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophis, the eleventh jaseth, and twelfth Amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, Will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there, and they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor any one who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life." I usually don't make too many comments at this time in the service, but one significant interpretive issue is what are we actually dealing with today? And I wanted to go over that for a moment because you read in verses 9 and 10 that the angel says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And so often people would say, well, that's got to be God's people. Those are people. And then in verse 10, the angel takes him and shows him a city. So the question is, 
what's the city? Is the city a city? Or is the city people? Now, it would seem to me, if you want to be respected today, the right way to understand this is to say, there is no city at all. The city stands for the people. The city is the bride. There are no pearly gates. There are no streets of gold. That is just a picture of people. That's one way to understand it. And they say that in particular because the names are there. And these colors are often related back to the the Holy of Holies and how the high priest would have these different gems in the breastplate. And all those things represent people. So there are some scholars who believe that as we go through the book of Revelation, there is hardly anything in the book that is actually future. It really all has to do with what Christ did at the cross in dying for his people and encouraging his people as they suffer through this life. It really has almost nothing to do with the future. That's one understanding. The second would be is that this passage talks about a city again and again and again, and that it's really a city. And the fact that it has walls and foundations and streets and dimensions for all those things, the fact that people enter it, that it has gates, the fact when you compare it to Babylon, we're told in chapter 18, verse 3, to come out of Babylon, it would seem then that it's a real city. It has all the features of a city. So you say, well, what is it? I think the best way is to understand it both. Because there really is a city that God has prepared. And Brother Ernie talked about that this morning in the book of Hebrews. Abraham sought a city that God was going to build. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I go and prepare a place for you. I'll come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There really is a place. So my understanding, the way I'll present this today, is that this is not simply symbolic language, that there really aren't any pearly greats. I believe there are. There really is a city. There really is a city that will descend from heaven, that God has prepared. That said, it is God's people who will inhabit that city. And that's the kind of dynamic that we have as we go through a hard book like this. We have the city of Babylon. We have the city of Jerusalem. Are they real cities? From what I understand, yes. You could look at Babylon being destroyed and stand off at a distance and see it smoke. We already learned that. And we can look at a distance from a high mountain at this city. But we also realize that those cities are inhabited by real people. The one will be those who are lost. The other, those who know the Lord. So hopefully that answers a few questions if you had that question coming into it, but that'll direct us as we go on further in the message today. All right, sermon number one out of the way. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for God to help us today. Would you put your hymn books away for a moment and take out your Bibles? If you want to pull out your manuscript, you can too, or the children's bulletin. Or your bulletin, look for the outline. All of those may help you today. And I should have said it last week, but there's also a man named Baton. He wrote a song, And I Saw a New Heaven. I'll try to post some links for you, but there's some really good music that can uh, help you 
really appreciate what's before us and uh, had the chance to sing one of those songs and uh, at school, but I just, I commend them to you. All right, as we get into the book of Revelation chapter 21, I want to have sermon number two for a moment before I get into sermon number three, all right? I do this often because I always want us to get a good picture of what's before us. It's often said that Revelation is so confusing, therefore people just don't want to read it or don't want to try to understand it because it just seems so confusing. I've really, through the course of the study, tried to boil it down so that it really is manageable. And as you have your coffee in the morning and read your Bible each day, that you really get a blessing from it, even a book like the book of Revelation. As you know, it is not uncommon for stories to have chapters. Kids, books you read, they have chapters. And chapters divide the story up into intelligible parts, significant parts. So the book of Revelation, in which Jesus Christ is disclosing how he will establish the kingdom of God on the earth, is actually given to us in chapters. There are four chapters. You say, well, there are 22 chapters. No, the chapters in your Bible were put there much, much later, okay? There's really four chapters. There's an opening and a closing and four main sections that all point to Christ and the way in which he's bringing the kingdom of God to earth. That is the future necessary event. Chapters in a book are often laid out with headings. Kids, you have chapter 1, you have chapter 2, you have chapter 3. You'll notice in the original Greek, there's no chapter headings. Instead, each of these four chapters begins with a unique experience of the Apostle John. A unique prophetic experience. So we look at chapter 1, verse 10. This is the first, where the first chapter begins, if you would where John writes, and he says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit. He's describing a unique prophetic experience of receiving direct revelation from God. And that happens again in chapter 4, verse 2, where it says that once I, John, was in the Spirit. So the second chapter begins there in chapter 4 and goes all the way through chapter 16. That's the longest chapter. And then John's third and fourth prophetic experiences happen where a particular angel helps John. We see the first of those, the third chapter, that begins in chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Verse 3, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. That's chapter 3. And now for today, chapter 4 begins in the middle of chapter 21 in our Bibles. Verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain. So each chapter in the, from the actual text of the book of Revelation begins with John's in the spirit reference. So I know Revelation has 22 chapters. I'd really like you to think there are four chapters. That's what we get from the text itself. And I bring this up because I want us to see the point of the book. 
so that we can have some sense of context and continuity as we study it. There are other methods of interpreting this book that are cyclical or chiastic, and they seem to slice and dice this book apart in very unnatural ways, which lead to canned interpretations, in my opinion. So, these four chapters, what we want to notice in each of these is that Christ is in them, and we need to notice where Christ is. Since we've already, we're in chapter 21, we're just going to do a quick review then. In chapter 1, Christ stood among the candlesticks. That is to say, he currently rules the church. He exerts his authority over them and scrutinizes their motivations and their actions. Because John saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. There's Christ. Chapter 1. Chapter 2, which is chapters 4 through 16, Jesus in the future will reign as king in judgment. Because John saw a lamb standing, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And from that point, Christ exerts heaven's authority upon the earth. And he initiates conflict with the earth to win the earth back from usurpers. Let me turn to chapter 3, 17 through 21, where Christ in the future is going to overthrow all the systems that are allied against him. Because John saw Christ. When heaven opened, and behold, a great white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he, Christ, judges and makes war. Chapter 3 is about Christ conquering. He's the champion. Now we come to chapter 4, beginning in chapter 21. Christ in the future will join his people to himself. Because John saw the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And they will see his face, chapter 22, verse 4. Jesus Christ is bringing his people into the blessing of peace and fellowship with God. That's the great story of this book. How Christ is the hero. And that's how this Bible ends. So I hope that helps just give a broad, a broad brushstroke of where we are in this book. So that when we come to the end... We can appreciate where we've been and where this has all been heading. Let's ask for God's help as we go into it today. Father, thank you for your word as we come to this much anticipated portion of your word. May you encourage our hearts. May you strengthen us. May you cause us to not live for today, but to live for this day that we will be with you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm told that little girls dream about their wedding day. They select the style of dress that they will wear and their accessories. They choose the colors for the bridal party that will line the front of the church. They plan the floral arrangements and the party favors. They dream it all up and carry it with them for years before they ever say, I do. You say, why do they do that? Well, it's because they long to be wed. And those dreams of all those details elevate that longing to one day be wed. So in Revelation 21, we see a picture which is meant to increase our longing. It's a picture of the new Jerusalem. That's what the angels showed John. The angel came to John, said to John, verses 9 and 10, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Since the fall, man has lived outside of Eden. Man has been distanced from God. Yet here in the end, man will finally enjoy direct fellowship with God. The story of the book of Revelation is how Jesus Christ is going to make that happen. One day, he'll rain down tribulation upon the earth and then descend to make war. Victorious, he's going to set up his kingdom on the earth and judge his foes. And what's left is what we wait for, what we hope for, being united with God. And it's Jesus Christ who will bring us into that blessing. Christ has revealed this for us so that we know what the wife of the Lamb will enjoy. He ensures this eternity and the blessing it holds for His people. We saw last week that eternity holds a much better condition. He makes all things new. The creation is going to be remade. John saw the new heavens and the new earth. We learned also that this better condition to come is going to be close fellowship with God. And it's an exclusive privilege for God's people. That was last week, verses 1 through 8. Now today, let's consider eternity holds a better city. That's what we learn in verses 9 through 27. Look at verse 10. The angel showed John the city, showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So the city is radiant, having the glory of God. And what a contrast this city is with the great city Babylon, which the angel also showed John. Babylon was full of abomination. God said, come out of her, my people. But Jerusalem is full of God's glory. It's God's people who will enter her. So Christ is holding out two cities at the end of the book. Two cities. Because he wants people to desire Jerusalem. So eternity's better city displays the glory of God, verses 9 through 21. Let's look at her maker, her members, her measurements, and her materials. Verse 9 through 11. God is her maker. It says that the city comes down from God. And this is a fulfillment of what Jesus told his disciples. In John chapter 14, Jesus told them that he was leaving and told them not to despair because he assured them he would go, prepare a place for them, and return. And even before Christ said that to his disciples, Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham looked for this city whose designer and builder was God. So it is God who has prepared his people for a city, and the city now descends from heaven. And its appearance is breathtaking. It radiates like a most rare jewel. It has the glory of God. And as you think about the glory of God, I bring you back to the transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is transfigured on the mountain before Peter, James, and John. And the Bible says that his face shone shone like the sun, and his clothes were as the light. So the text here says that the new Jerusalem shines like a jasper stone. So what's a jasper stone look like? Jasper stone is a deep, 
rich red, orange color. But unlike ours, this one is clear. And as we read through this description, we're supposed to be wowed by the scarlet beauty of this radiant city. Let's look at verses 12 through 14 where we see its gates and foundations. It had a high wall with 12 gates, 12 gates, 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So what we have here is a bit of the layout of the New Jerusalem. But we also see names, and those names are significant. You say, well, what do the names mean? Well, names represent those who belong there. Kids. Remember when you used to go to school? You used to have a desk. And whose name was on the desk? Your name. Because you're the person who sits there. Older folks, you might be someone, or you might at least know someone, who has the privilege of parking in one of those designated parking spots. Because in front of that parking spot is a sign with a name on it of the person who gets to park there. You see, the names that are on the city indicate who's there. And the names are of the sons of Israel. The names of the apostles are on the foundations. So it's the saints who are the citizens of the city. Their names are inscribed on it. The saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament, they together are the bride of the Lamb. Now, theologically speaking, it is not the church alone who is the bride of Christ. The bride includes Israel from the description here. We may assume then that perhaps the saints before Israel and the saints after the church are also included in this number. But think about the churches who received this letter from the Apostle John, the Apostle whose name was inscribed on the city. They must have been excited because they loved the Lamb like the Apostle John who had taught many of them personally. They were excited to learn that they had a place in this city. It was their city made for them. And we're supposed to feel the same way when we see these names. We're included there. This city is for you, for me. That is wonderful. You might think then, is there going to be space for all these folks? Well, there is, because her measurements are vast. We see that the angel measures the city with a rod, verses 15 through 17. One of them spoke, the one that spoke with me, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. That means the bottom of it is a square. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 strata. Its length and width and height are equal. So, young people, what objects have equal length, width, and height? That's two-dimensional. A cube. What other object has equal length, width, and height? Think of Egypt. Pyramids. Some people say it's a cube. Some people say it's a pyramid. It's up to you. 
Its length and width and height are equal. It's me- and then he measured the wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So this city, to interpret what that is all talking about in our language, this city is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles tall. And its wall is 72 yards tall. Think of a football field. This wall is 72 yards tall. This is a huge city. The breadth of the city, the, what it covers on landmass, it covers a lot of the continental United States of America. That is a huge, huge city, one city. And its height, its height is eight times taller than a spaceship that orbits the earth at 200 miles above sea level. This is huge. The point is there's plenty of room for all who will come to Christ to be saved. You say living in the New Jerusalem is not going to be living like living life in an apartment in New York City where you have 300 square feet maybe. There's lots and lots of room. There's space. And this city is beautiful because her materials are exquisite. The city is composed of precious jewels. Look at them with me in verse 18 and following. following. It says, The wall is built of jasper. That's that deep, rich, reddish-orange color. While the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Now, our gold isn't clear glass, but obviously God is working with a much higher grade of gold. Verse 19 and 20, it's foundations. Foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Jasper, that's reddish orange. And sapphire, that's blue. And agate, that's possibly gray or multicolored. Emerald, that's green. Onyx, that's black. Carnelian, that's red. Chrysolite, that's a yellowish, goldish, light, perhaps light green gem. Beryl, that's red orange again. Topaz, that's red or burgundy. Chrysophase, that's green. Jacinth, that's deep blue, almost purple. And then amethyst, which is purple. You say, what do all those look like? I couldn't help but look this morning as I sat uh, down there for a moment. Look at the windows. Those are a lot of colors put together, and they're beautiful. That is just a tiny, tiny, tiny thumbnail of what this city is like. It is just glorious. Or go look at what Connie Baco makes. These things that she puts together, they're just beautiful. Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Remember, the wall is 72 yards tall. The wall length is 1,500 miles. So how big are these gates? They're a pearl apiece. That is a huge pearl, and that's a very big oyster. If the Lord needed an oyster to make it. The streets of the city are pure gold, like transparent glass. You see, all those things that we just read about, those things are incredibly rare. Most of the stuff we deal with is is common. All these things are rare. We use wood brick, asphalt, concrete, maybe steel to build. 
God uses the rarest and most costly materials, and he does so in abundance. Some of you young people have played Minecraft before. You know how long it would take you to mine all of these rare jewels? I know how long it takes to work it in the game. God has all this in abundance. And we men who work many, many, many hours to buy a tiny diamond to put on our dear wife's finger and to think that this city is going to be built by precious stones like that. Wow. No wonder the, this new Jerusalem displays the glory of God. I mean, who else but God can make a city like this? Because this city displays the glory of God. Verses 22 through 27, we'll see that this better city enjoys the presence of God too. Up until this point, the city has only been described in its appearance. We have an idea of its blueprint. But now the emphasis is shifting to what living in the city is going to be like. It's not going to be like a current situation at all because the presence of God is going to make certain things unnecessary. So we learn a lot of things that are absent from the city in in these verses because God's presence allows direct access for his people, verse 22. There isn't a temple there. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see, there is no place to worship God in the city Because we meet God in the city. For years and years and years, God had restricted access to his presence in the temple and in the tabernacle, and only that through the priest. But in the New Jerusalem, people will have direct access to the presence of God. Now, recently, schools have been reopening so our kids can attend in-person instruction. And therefore, all those Chromebooks that were distributed for distance learning are no longer needed. Similarly, the temple is no longer necessary. There's no distance. It's in person. Secondly, verses 23, 4, and 6, God's presence illumines the activity of his people. There isn't isn't going to be a sun or a moon Verse 23 says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So the glory of God and of the Lamb is the light of the city. You say, why do we need to know about light? Verse 24, By its light will the nations walk. Ah, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, as well as the honor of the nations. You know that, our days revolve around the rising and the setting of the sun. We work in the daylight for the most part. And the light of the Lord is going to provide for the activity of his people in that day. You say, well, what are the people going to do? Well, the text says that the kings of the earth bring their glory into the city. What would a king bring to another king? Have any ideas, kids? And we know from Christmas time that three gifts were brought to Jesus. And it seems to be that these things that the kings are bringing are portable, and they represent what a person can produce. And as soon as you hear that, you might think, well, it sounds like they're bringing the fruits of their labors. That sounds like work. 
Yes, this will be work, but the best kind of work. No sweat, no thorns, no curse. This will be great. And the people will take what they produce, and they're going to give it in worship to God. See, that's their disposition. Those who enter the city want to worship God with what they have. The question is, is that your disposition? Because that's not most people's disposition, because most people love money and not God. But the good news is that by God's grace, He's changed your heart, He's changed my heart, so that we're cheerful givers. And the kinds of things that these kings will do one day is the kind of thing that we're already doing because God has changed our hearts. We'll be able to worship the Lord directly, living in His light. His presence is going to allow access and give us light for activity. Third, in verses 25 through 27, His presence guarantees security for His people. The gates aren't shut. Verse 25 says, and its gates will never be shut by day because there is no night there. You know, gates are usually opened in the day and closed at night for protection purposes. But because God's presence and His light, there's no need for protective measures. You think of the churches of Asia Minor. Think of the church of Smyrna. That was a church that faced persecution for their faith in Christ. They were... They're living in a place where they could be harmed. And many people around the world today who believe in Jesus Christ risk their life for Christ. But in eternity, there won't be any threats. Never have to close the gates. They'll always be open. Verse 27, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who practices abominations or lying, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we see that the presence of God is going to ensure that only those allowed may enter the city. Those who aren't allowed are those who live for what God hates. They have no problem with telling a lie. So most people are not going to be a part of the new Jerusalem. They're going to stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment, which we already saw in chapter 20. But those who are allowed are those who have been forgiven of all their sin by the work of Jesus Christ. The chapter ends by saying, it is their names that are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is to show us that this wonderful blessing of the new Jerusalem is held out to those who have a relationship with Christ. It all hinges on a person's relationship to Christ, the hero of this book of Revelation. Christ is the one who one day will conquer and bring his people into this experience of blessing. And he's told us about it because he wants us to long for it. Even as a little girl dreams about her wedding day. So do you long for this? Are you preparing yourself to be a citizen of this city? Father, we pray today that you would use a text like this to really cut our heartstrings from this earth and cause us to be pilgrims and exiles in this world, to be like Abraham who sojourned, who looks for a better city, who looks for 
uh, renewed fellowship with God, where there are no restrictions, where there is no distance. Father, we are thankful that Christ prepared a city for us and has promised that one day we will be with him. Lord, help us to long for that instead of longing for the things that dazzle around us today. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.